all the time, repeated phone calls, and they kept saying, oh, you know, come to this program and come to this program. So all, all the while I thought they're calling me to be a guest on a show, and to tell you the truth, I had a lot of work to do, and I wasn't so interested in it. Until like the 10th call, and that one didn't come from them. It came from the bishop saying to me, Albert, will you please respond to those people? They want you to go to do something with them over there. It's a place called Telemundo, and you may know that they're owned by Comcast, you know, the, which now owns the world. So if there's anyone here, you know. And it used to be owned by NBC or Universal. I guess it's all part of the same thing now. But I remember when I first went, they stuck a camera in front of my face, and they started bringing a bunch of people in front of me. And I didn't know, but they were actors. And there were all kinds of actors creating scenarios. Oh, I have a drug problem, or I have a problem with my child, or I have a problem with this. And they kept taping and taping. I'm like, okay, why exactly did the bishop make me come here, and why are these people doing this? Well, at the end of the session, the lady says to me, Father, we've interviewed 400 priests from the West Coast to the East Coast, and, and you're the one that's going to do it. And I said, do what? Don't worry, we'll call you. So I left to my house that day totally confused. I remember being at dinner at the rectory and with the other priests, and the, the pastor said to me, uh, well, Albert, how did it go? I said, well, I have no idea what happened there, Monsignor, but they had all these people taping me. So I, I, you know, that was funny. That went on and on. And then I realized they wanted me to host a talk show. So you're looking at the first member of the clergy that was ever asked to be a talk show host on a daily basis on American national television. Between Bishop Sheen and I, there were no clergy persons regularly on American television, which is kind of an interesting thing. And I remember when I first started this thing, my friends would tease me. and said, do we call you Father Springer? Do we call you, you know? I said, please, no. So they started calling me Father Oprah, and I was happy with that. When they called me Father Oprah, the New York Times did that, uh, I thought, okay, that's a little better. I can deal with Father Oprah. I want to share something with you about church and media because I was you know, a young DJ when I started thinking about becoming a priest, so I left the seminary and thought media would never be part of my life again because now I'm just going to go into the church world. And the church world is all about prayer and contemplation and service and outreach, and we don't have to deal with microphones and TV cameras and all that stuff. We weren't dealing with internet yet at that time. But I say this to you because somehow, in the way we think of church, we always think about church as being removed from the rest of the world, especially when it comes to church services and prayer. And that's why we go to this special place to worship, because we're gonna, gonna, we want the quiet thing. We want the, we want the prayerful thing. We want to sing the hymns and, 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 and listen to the lessons, and we want to hear the sermon. So there's always something about coming here that removes us, if you will, from our day-to-day -day hustle and bustle. But I want to show you a visual, and I thank Lou for, for helping me with this visual. I said to Lou, Lou, I need a, I need a prayer book and a hymnal. When we go to... And she delivered. When, when you go to church, when we go to church, most of us Episcopalians, we deal with these books the most, right? Our prayer book, our hymnal. In some of our churches, also the Bible is part of the, the pew space, right? And so you've got these books, and they're wonderful books. But most of the people under the age of, I don't know, 40, I would say today, deal with this in this way. As a matter of fact, it's been a shock to me 
how many young clergy I've seen actually celebrate Eucharist using one of these. You know, the prayer book is all in here, as you know. Uh, even our church, St. Benedict's, we have our own little church app. So if you put St. Benedict's, and you go to your Google store or your Apple store, and you press St. Benedict's, you get your little St. Benedict's app, and in there you've got the prayer book, the daily lessons. Now we got stuff about Lent. You can even give to the church, which is always a good idea, online. So I, I just show this to you because I think, you know, church and media are coming together more and more. This and this are beginning to be more and more part of the same thing. There isn't a huge chasm, if you will, between this and this. There's more and more of a connect. I spent the last five years of my life going to the University of the South because I had this desire not just to continue my studies, but to deepen my knowledge of the whole theology, if you will, and the whole craft, the practical part of preaching and how it has to do with communication. So the way we preach and the way we communicate has certainly a lot to do with uh, connecting with folks today. And so I thought, well, as part of my demon program, I knew I wanted to do something in the area of communication and preaching. And that's why for the Doctor of Ministry thesis, I chose to write this thing, which is now being published by Church Publishing. It's called Talking God. Uh, I, I want to tell you the original title so you can laugh a little bit. It shows you the difference between a thesis title and a book title. The original title was The Ongoing Evolution of Our Media Culture and the Listening Context as It Pertains to the Craft of Preaching in the 21st Century. <laughs> the title of the book, Talking God, Preaching to Contemporary Congregations. <laughs> Same thing, by the way. Well, not really. I had to scrap about two chapters out of my uh, doctoral thesis and add two chapters for the book, but that was also fun an adaptation, if you will. But I say this to you because my concern was to look at how we communicate today and how people listen today. And I don't know if we have any neurologists in the room or people who have dealt with these things, but you know this brain imaging is a big deal now where they can look at the brain and see where the activity is taking place and what is pushing the buttons in our brain to function. And I don't know how I got there, but I know it had something to do with my research. I had to start looking at the whole dynamics of brain imaging and how it is that communication impacts the brain. And so all of a sudden, here I am writing a doctor of ministry thesis from a theology department, right, at the School of Theology in Suwannee, and I had to like, go into, you know, read the works by neurosurgeons and this and that and the other. I'm like, okay, this isn't right. But it turned out to be fascinating. Because with brain imaging, we see how our brains function. And we see not just how they function, but how our brains are changing. Now listen to me carefully, church. Our brains are changing. It's not the same when we pray out of the prayer book and we're accustomed to the prayer book as when you're going through this thing, multitasking through all of your text messages, your Facebook posts, what someone put on Twitter, the latest soundbite by Donald Trump, and church. 
all in one. You're going through this and your brain is going 10 different directions. And our brains are becoming accustomed to it, by the way. At least from my research, I was able to discover that the way people are communicating and the way people are receiving information is really changing. It's changing a great deal. And the different parts of the brain that react differently to different things. And so what's happening now is we are becoming a much more visual society. We are becoming a society that depends a lot more on images, not just the images you see, if I were to have a screen here, for example, and show you an image, but the images that we speak with, the images and the stories and the anecdotes and the things that help us to connect different things, they're so necessary. Now, you may say, well, we've known that for 50 years, or we've known that for 100 years. Yes, but what we did not know is how our brains react so radically different to the way things are communicated. We thought it was just creative. We thought it was fun. We thought it was unique or special. I'm here to tell you, it's just part of the norm today. Communication has changed. And so the challenge for the church is, do we continue to communicate the message of the gospel in the same traditional way we've always done it and expect the same result when the brains of your congregation are not where they were 100 years ago or 50 years ago even or 25 years ago? The fact is the way we receive messages is radically changing. And somehow the way that we transmit the message must also eventually radically change. So I'm not saying undo church and let's do it a whole new way. Like, you know, my sister that never goes to church, my younger sister never ever goes to church, and she was raised in the same home I was. I became a priest. She went through all the religious school and everything, and she never goes to church. But she said, you should do this stuff on the Internet, she said one day. And I'm like, oh, really? Church on the Internet? Well, a lot of young people think church can happen on the Internet. You and I know who have experienced community and have experienced praying together, and especially as Anglicans, common prayer, right? That's what we're all about. You can't really do it too much over the Internet. There have been some experiments, but it's not the same. Community is community, and Jesus brought us together in community when he brought the church together. And here we are, 2,000 years later, we're still community. With all of our ups and downs, we're still community. And so I say this to you because how we experience church is definitely changing, and some things about the way we do church probably need to evolve in order to connect with a lot of the younger generations and the people who are communicating exclusively this way. And so that's the premise of what I wanted to share with you. And one of the things that I want for you to take on this day is to think about what you and I can do to make the church more present in that media circus, if you, if you want to call it that, in that world where there's so many stimuli and so many things happening all the time. It's not just, you know, the 24-7 news cycle. It's not just the Internet. It's not just, it's almost everything we do is now happening somehow electronically. Funny, the other day we had our, our Lenten program speaker, who's an Anglican nun from, from Oklahoma. She came to visit us, and she's giving her retreat. And when I asked the, we were having dinner, and my wife was there, my kids and that, and we were 
asking for the check. And the gentleman said, oh, no, you, you don't need the check. This is right here. And they had this little tablet on the table. And then they want you to slide your card and give your tip and everything. There was never any paper involved. There was no paper involved in that whole transaction. It was all like, oh, no, thank you for ordering the food. And thank you for being here and all that. And your check is already there. And so I got my card, went through the things, slid the little scale. You should have those at church. <clears throat> I would. So I just say, really the way we interact is radically changing. And the church has to think about that. So I throw that at you today just for you to think and reflect on it. The best research is telling us that our young people are not really communicating well this way anymore. So we've got to have to, we have to kind of have to figure out what we're going to do. We don't have to lose this. We don't have to lose the, the, the richness of this. But we do have to look at it. Is this accessible to people that live on this? Is this really accessible? And how are we going to bridge the gap as the gap continues to grow, by the way? We know all the research. On, I don't want to give you the bad news, but we know all the research on millennials and what they think about church, the growing number of people who say they believe in nothing, and we call them the nuns, right? And they're not people that live in a convent, but the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Um, what does that mean? And how do we deal with that? So I want to open it up to you all for questions and answers, and I uh, would like to have a, a discussion on, on this topic. And anything else you think you'd like to ask me, I'm, I'm open to, uh, to any questions. Yes. <laughs> Very good. Those are, those are two excellent questions. Well, yes. Oh, yeah. Well, he first asked about, uh, you know, with millennials... How do we uh, bridge that gap, right? Is that, that was the first part of it. And, and he basically said something about attention span. I disagree with you. I think we're all in this together. I think our attention spans are all changing, by the way. I don't think it's by age group. I just think that the more you interact with this, your brain work, works differently than if you're just interacting with this. And I don't know too many people today, even at 75, that are just interacting with this. I mean, you know, my mom's on Facebook, and she goes into the Internet and all that, and I think... And she uses her cell phone. So I think it's becoming, it's a society thing. But at the same time, you ask a very important question. Is this going to take away from the experience with this when it comes to prayer and meditation? What I have found is this makes it more accessible. When I leave my prayer book at home, like I did yesterday when I got onto my flight with my wife right to come here, I didn't have this, but I had this. So I had morning, evening prayer, night prayer. Everything is on this. So I, to, to me, to tell you the truth, there comes a time when you kind of say, why take up that much space in your bag if you can have it here? And the truth is, uh, that's the whole thing about computers, right? We started getting into laptops. Why? 
because we couldn't take our big desktop with us everywhere, right? Laptops were this big innovation. Oh, you can you could get a little thing like this and take it with you. Yeah. And now it's happening here. So I think it's just a matter of how we connect. And you can pray just as well on a, on a mobile phone if you're, if you're looking at the same words and you're praying the same words as you can out of a book. Obviously, take some adaptation. Um, my, my concern would be for us to disconnect altogether, which is what I see happening more and more, that the church is, you know, as, as we, don't, um, we don't bridge that gap, we keep focusing on doing it our way, the rest of society is just moving ahead and saying, okay, you keep doing it your way, we're going to do it our way. Get what I'm saying? You know, I got to tell you, when I, started, when I started working in TV, a lot of people said, and this kind of hits more at your first question, televangelists. When I was on TV for 11 years in Spanish television, people would say to me, that's a great idea the church had to put you on TV. That was a great idea. The church didn't have that idea. It was a secular company that had to convince the church to sign the contract to allow me to work in media because the church was so afraid of media. And to a certain extent, we still are. You say on TV today, you say the word Episcopal. People have no clue who we are. Most people have no clue. I know that's hard for many of you hardcore cradle Episcopalians to believe, but you'd be surprised. They couldn't care less. Are we Presbyterians? Are we Methodists? Are we Unitarians? Trinitarians? They have no idea. Are we Protestants? Are we Catholic? Are we Anglican? What are we? Episcopalians have no clue. I, I've, been, I've heard every misrepresentation of the term Episcopalians as I became one. <coughs> well, Father, how does it feel to be a Presbyterian pastor now? I've been asked that. <laughs> well, no, I'm a priest, and I'm an Episcopal priest. Really? And they have priests in that church? Yeah, and they have bishops. Really? Yeah. And they have Eucharist? Oh, they have Eucharist. Why well, didn't know that? People have no clue who we are. But we really haven't done a whole lot to get ourselves out there. You know, we're beginning to make some strides in the media department, in the media world, but we haven't done a whole lot to get ourselves out there. So that's something we need to be aware of. I think televangelists, I'll tell you what they're doing. They're bringing the church to people's houses. So we can criticize Joel Osteen for never going to seminary, and we can criticize, you know, Joyce Meyer for her theological positions, or we can uh, talk about all these people, but the fact is they're doing what the mainstream church refuses to do which is to be present in a space which is accessible to the greater or greatest number of eyes and ears. And a lot of people, that's how they're consuming church. And I have parishioners of mine tell me, oh, Father, I hope you don't mind, but when I don't make it to church, I just watch Joel Osteen. A pastor in one church in Texas has more of a media presence than a two-million-member church with a hundred plus dioceses in this country, that must say something to us. If we don't have it in our budget to create a 30 minute, a 27 minute, actually with commercials, 24 minutes, 24 minute preaching space, we can't, we don't have it in our budget nationally, locally, to have 24 minutes of preaching saying this is an Episcopal clergy person that is preaching to to people and getting in their homes. We just haven't made it a priority. And if we continue that route, we'll just be more and more irrelevant as time goes on because that's where people are. People are there. 
Ja. That's, that's what we have to train our minds to do. So I'll tell you what I do. All of my notifications are off on my phone because I can't stand them. I can't stand praying morning prayer and then getting this. So-and-so posted this, and so-and-so posted that, or so-and-so did this. I take my notifications off because I use my phone also in that way, in that prayerful way, so I can't have things flashing up and popping up. I can't. It'll drive me crazy. But it takes discipline. But the same thing happens with prayer with a book. You know, we have a thing in prayer that we call interior silence and exterior silence. Most of us can arrive at the exterior silence. I'm going to sit quietly for five minutes. It's a thing I'm doing for Lent, right? I'm going to sit quietly for five minutes and read the Bible. Wonderful. Exterior silence is off. You turned off your phone. You turned off your noise. You found a, a, a nice corner. But what about the interior silence? Oh, I got, I got to go pick up the kids. Oh, I got to, I got to go do this. Oh, oh you know, I, I, there's a sale at Macy's. Oh, the, you know, this is, all these things going on in your mind, you have to train yourself to turn them off. That's the interior silence. So I think the same thing happens now. Of course, the challenge is greater. I agree with you 100%. The challenge is greater to be able to focus. And maybe we are living in a society where people have lost the capacity to focus. I mean, we hear this every day. We hear it in the political arena. We hear it in the news. How do you, how do you get people to deepen their awareness of any message, anyone's message, if people don't really listen, really, really listen, if we live by sound bites. So I like that sound bite better than I like this sound bite, so I'll vote for this one. This is a sound bite. Well, what about the depth of the message? And see, this is what newspapers are trying to do. Newspapers are trying to get away. If you read a newspaper 50 years ago, you'd have the most important news smashed right in the front, right? Because that's the way people got their news. They couldn't just turn on the tube and get what happened. No, they got it on the paper. So the morning paper said, this is what's happening. That's not what papers do anymore. What papers tell you is, oh, what we do now is something's happening, and we're going to give people an analysis, an in-depth analysis of that which happened. So you read the paper to get the deeper story. You don't really read the paper anymore to get your news. That's over. People already got the news. They heard it. 20 times before they read the paper. But those of us that read the paper, read it because we need an in-depth understanding of what's really happening, see? And that's kind of what happens, I believe, with prayer. You need an opportunity to go deeper, and that's not going to happen with this or this. It's going to happen with a, a sense of self-discipline, someone that says, I want to have a deeper connection. Ha, <laughs> I don't know of anyone who's really done it. I know that there's a thing called the Barna Group, which is kind of like a Pew Research, totally religious Pew Research type thing, that they do a lot of that kind of work. You know, what kind of worship spaces attract young people the most? And believe it or not, it's been proven that the worship spaces that attract 
young people the most are the traditional worship services. You would think that those warehouse churches with the lights and all that kind of, that that would be the thing. It doesn't uh, come up in the research as being the most attractive place. That's good for gathering people. They like to be gathered that way. But when it comes to a, a sense of prayer and spirituality, young people are saying, no, 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 let's keep the traditional church, please. They want to get married in a traditional-looking church. They want to have their children christened and baptized in a traditional-looking church. They, they're not into the warehouse. The warehouse seems to gather a lot of people, but that's more practical than it is emotional. And so I guess, there, I, I guess we'll have to go in that direction, doctor. We have to go in that direction of understanding that. But I think one of the, one of the things that I can tell you is the more we stimulate the senses, the more images we use, whether physical images or verbal images in communication, the more we stimulate different parts of the brain for different types of personalities and different types of people, the more effective we'll be. Uh, there are too many sermons that are a long theological treatise on some subject. And to tell you the truth, that's getting away from what a sermon is. You can call that Bible study, you can call that in-depth reading of the Bible, but the sermon or the homily, depending on your tradition or where you come from, even though sermon and homily, that's another thing I discovered in the season, sermon and homily are now used interchangeably a lot. I prefer to, to use the term sermon many times because I think it's broader, it includes more of the Christian denominations than just, you know, homily. But within the liturgical context, like ours, which is a, a liturgical traditional service, the sermon is supposed to connect the biblical message with the reality of the people present. And the truth is, many times, sermons have become, or, or I've observed that they've been, definitely not here at St. John's, by the way. Uh, <clears throat> I've heard sermons be something like, I'm going to tell you what I think you need to think about theologically because, because this is what God told me, so he must be telling you that. And, and, and to tell you the truth, that's kind of very, very uh, limited because I think what a congregant is looking for is something that I can take home with me to apply the message of Jesus, the message of the Lord, to my daily living so that I may be a better disciple, a better follower of Christ. And so how do I grab that message and then take it and live with it this week so that when I come back to worship next Sunday, there's an ongoing spiritual growth taking place. And it's not just a class about what such and such a biblical expert said, such and such a biblical expert said. And I know that some people want that, and it stimulates them. But you've got to understand that's less than 10% of the population. The great majority of people just want something practical to take home with them so that they can be better followers of Christ for the next week. And that's something that applies, I think, to every age level. And I think it's something that applies to, to most of us. So it is a challenge, I agree. I mean, how do we find out What's stimulating? Does incense, for example, stimulate certain parts of the, of the, of the brain? Does, uh, does a certain kind of music attract us more to prayer or less to prayer? Uh, is, is the way the message is being presented helping to connect? Yeah. 
Well, I, I thank you for that. I, I want you to know that there are lots of things in the media. And one of the things that I always try to tell people is for many, many, many decades, if you will, the church has been in a constant fight with the media. And when I say the church, I'm talking about the body of Christ, a broader right church. I, I've seen how denominations have fought and come out and said this. Actually, we sometimes hear our politicians say that the media is against them. Someone in the media is against them. Well, the truth is we cannot, as a church, fight the media. I think as a church, we must conquer the media. We must bring the message of God in different ways to that. And some people do that creatively. Some, you, some people use their gifts and talents to do that very creatively. And some people obviously use it to, to blaspheme and do things that are, that are evil and, and not good. But to spend our time condemning whatever is wrong in the world is really not the role of the church the way I see it. You know, there's a Chinese proverb that, that I really love. I, I received a, a recognition for my TV work once from an organization called the Christophers. It was a very popular organization based out of New York, and they basically looked for the good things in media, and they always honored them. Every year they had you know, the best, most positive programs, the, the things that brought you know, uh, some type of good to the, to the screen, and I, I was honored to have that award in 2000, and they said to me, they said uh, on the bottom, it said, it is better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. It's supposed to be a Chinese proverb. And I like that. It's, it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. There's a lot of darkness, obviously, out there. There's a lot of things that are not godly or, or the things we would prefer to have to hear and see. But we do a lot more for God when we light the candle. We do a lot more for God. Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. What attracted me to the Episcopal Church? Well, I'm going to tell you, uh, I fell in love with a beautiful lady, and she's here in the front. Stand up so they can see what attracted me to the Episcopal Church. I love to put her on the spot. She's one of the shyest people in the world, and I put her on the spot all the time. Well, no, the truth is this. I was always involved in the ecumenical community as a Roman Catholic priest, and I was very, very blessed to be a friend of my bishop 15 years, actually 10 years before he became my bishop. So we were, uh, as I worked in Spanish media, he and his wife knew me from Honduras because I spent a lot of time in Central America doing programs and things. And um, one day we had a discussion, we had a show, and it was a Presbyterian pastor, a Baptist minister, an Episcopal bishop, and myself. I happened to be the host, but also a Roman Catholic priest, and we're talking, and the topic was celibacy. And we were on a commercial break, and um, the bishop and the pastor said, well, Albert, you know, we're a little confused because it seems to me like you have our position on celibacy. And I said, well... Yeah, I said, I, I really think it should be optional. I think a lot of priests and bishops feel that way. That's not the way Rome feels, but... Um, so I remember the bishop saying to me, Albert, if you ever want to get married, here's my card. <laughs> and I took it literally. No, but it, but it was more than marriage that brought me to the Episcopal Church. My wife knows this. When we, when we started um, getting to know the Book of Common Prayer, actually, and I, the first one I received was in Spanish, by the way, and it was given to me by Bishop Onel Soto, I don't know if you have, have any of you have heard his name, but he was the he and his wife were the translators of Forward Day by Day for 25 years. They translated it from English to Spanish for the entire Latin-speaking uh, church or the Spanish-speaking church. And so um, I would go to their house, you know, and I would sit there and talk to them. And one time after our discussions, we talked about issues like contraception and issues like uh, you know the the individual choices of you know your conscience, being able to make up your mind about what is right or wrong 
without a dogmatic uh, authority telling you this is the way you have to do it. And um, I remember speaking to them at length about these deep issues, you know, the structure of the church, the governance of the church, you know, the more democratic nature of the church. And Nina, who was very outspoken, turned to the bishop and said, Bishop uh, O'Neill, I think, I think Albert's more of an Episcopalian than we are. And it was because I, I believed, I was, I believed, I grew up in a Vatican II church, and my church, my, my parish was very, very, you know, democratic, the lay people had a voice, the women were involved in ministry and were leaders in the church, and I saw a church that kind of moved away from that more and more and more and more, so to tell you the truth, uh, most Episcopalians don't know this, and most Roman Catholics don't know this, but there's a bunch of closeted Episcopalians in the Roman Catholic Church. Because uh, what we are as church is really what most Roman Catholics long to be. And um, we, we're, still a best, we're still a best kept secret. And when you study not just our theology, because we've got the best of the Catholic tradition and the best of the Reformation in one church. And not many people have that. You know, we're a bridge tradition. And, and I think we're the only ones that have that, to tell you the truth, really have it. And when you, when you bring those two things together, there's a wealth of Christianity there. Because you really have... So much. Plus our, our, you know, our union and our connection with the Orthodox, it also gives us a sense of the East. If you look in our prayer book, there's a lot of stuff here from Rome, there is, but there's also a lot of stuff from the Greek church, which I don't think we recognize. Uh, but a lot of our prayers and things are, are very much connected to the Orthodox tradition. And so we have, I would say, the best of both worlds in Christianity, and we've been able to bring it into one tradition, into one church. I think that's what attracted me the most. And when I look at the discipline of the church, you know, our whole respect for reason. That it's not just what Scripture says, what tradition says, but that you're able to use your mind to make decisions for yourself and to understand how those decisions impact the larger world. I think it's very important, and I think that that's, that's key to being an Episcopalian. Yes, I agree with you. Well, I'll tell you this. The diocese, the local diocese is the best place to start. But we have seen, we have seen how churches like Trinity Wall Street, you know, have a media presence. It's not a mainstream media presence, but they produce things and they produce videos and they do things and that has an impact. So the idea would be to replicate the the things that we already have and to bring them together and and do something strong. There were conversations last year, I can tell you, before General Convention. We had several conversations about launching something and possibly doing something, and the folks at 815 in New York were very interested in it, but it never really became a priority. And it always seems to never become a priority. The thing is, the, the church doesn't see the urgency of it yet. There's a difference between talking the talk and walking the walk. Right now, the church is talking the talk when it comes to media and social media and doing this. And you see a lot of our clergy very interested in social media, and they're doing great things on Facebook. We had the Ashes to Go you know, campaign, which is very successful. All of the major newspapers 
in the U.S. had something on an Episcopal priest out there on the street. You know, again, something that didn't start in our church. It started in the United Church of Christ. I don't know if you know that. It was a UCC pastor in 2006 that said, I'm going to go out on Ash Wednesdays and put ashes on people's foreheads. But the, the Episcopal Church saw the strength of it, and basically we've taken it over. I mean, ashes to go is now a very much an Episcopal practice, and it's really out there, which is great. But I've got to tell you, it's not until we get on the wagon and say, okay, we know media is important. We are convinced it's important. How do we practically get this going so that we have that kind of visibility and that kind of presence? And the truth is, I'll tell you, you, you see how polarized we are when it comes to politics. I mean, there's no doubt. But people are looking for an inclusive church, a church of less judgment, a church that is less dogmatic. Who is that church? You know, a church that has tradition and has worship, a church that values where we come from, but at the same time, a church that is open to the 21st century and to this world as it is. Because see, as a Christian, you can do two things. As a Christian, you can say, oh, look at the world. It's all horrible. Look at the things that are happening. Oh, look at the injustices. Oh. Or you can say, wait a minute. This is the world we have. This is the world Jesus came to redeem. This is the world that Jesus came to save. This is the world we got to work with. And I believe that's what we do as church. We may not agree on everything. As a matter of fact, we usually don't agree. People ask all the time, well, what, is an epis- what is the Episcopal position on? I love to hear that because people want me to tell them. What is the Episcopal position on this? And I say, well, there's about 2 million Episcopalians in the U.S. There's probably about 2 million positions. But can we provide something? I agree with you 100%. We can provide something that no one else is providing. Yes. Last question. Yes, yes. Well, we have a constant relationship with them in our diocese. So Bishop Griselda was at our bishop seating the other day, not too long ago. Um, we have our former, our retired bishop now, just recently retired, Bishop Friday, is constantly going back and forth to build up the church there. And we have the blessing that we're one of the few dioceses in the country that have two or three priests that came out of the Episcopal Church in Cuba, which are rectors active in our diocese. So so the connections are always there. The relationships are always there. Uh, as a matter of fact, right now we probably have about, we have one of the retired bishops from Cuba, Bishop Tamayo, and we have about five, four or five of the older retired priests from Cuba, which are getting involved with our congregations as retired priests, and we have active priests involved. So let's say that we've got, I don't know, 25, 30, just, just clergy leaders. Imagine all the lay leaders that we have. There's, so there's constant back and forth. And that's one of the things, you know, so close but yet so far, right? You know, when it comes to Miami and Havana, we're so close but so far. So there's a lot of things that the church on the U.S. side needs to learn about the church on the Cuba side and vice versa because there's been such a disconnect for over 50 years. That's, that's a tragedy, if you will, of the, of the Castro dictatorship, that there's been a wall, a huge wall erected between Cubans in the U.S. and Cubans on the island.